welcome to episode 1937 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing well. My daughter took her first official steps today. <gasps> oh, Ben. Yeah. That's nice. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, she's been doing walking adjacent activities uh-huh. for quite some time, but today's the first time where it really is just incontrovertible, definite walking, all captured on video, very heartwarming. So my job here is done, I guess. Parenting wasn't so hard. She can get around without me now. So <laughs> time to kick her out of the nest. I was going to say, I feel like my friends who have had children have said that when they start walking, parenting gets harder. Oh, yeah. It's terrible news. Yeah, because, like, now, you know... It was great for a few minutes, and then consider the ramifications of this. And you, like, you know, you kind of leg into, no pun intended, the walking part, because crawling presents its own challenges, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of them were like, well, you know, it was nice, and we could just put them somewhere, and he couldn't go anywhere, you know? He just stayed there. Yes. Oh, pre-crawling was even better. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's just it gets progressively worse and worse. We we're very proud, but also dismayed <laughs> about what this means for us. So that was nice. It's been a good day for that reason. Not as good as yesterday when the dictionary definition of ghost runner changed. <laughs> but but not bad. <laughs> is is the strategy behind the volume of podcasts that we produce such that, you know, someone will never be able to go back and listen to all of them and thus will not know that you comped you know, her first <laughs> steps to dictionary.com changing the definition of something and then found it wanting yeah Yeah. it's definitely not the first time that i've made that kind of comparison because (laughs) i can i remember saying that having your sports team do something great is maybe the most joyous thing that can ever happen in your life sure (laughs) so hopefully she never hears that i can't imagine that she would ever be moved to go back and listen to perhaps decades old baseball podcast by that point but who knows you never know if so if uh, sloan you're listening in the future hello congrats on being able to walk (laughs) it's very exciting you know being able to walk yeah she was pretty excited about it yeah Yeah. also sort of apprehensive (laughs) not fully committed to the bit but we'll see pretty soon she'll be running around and then there will be no hope for any of us so a few follow-ups as usual. Today, I, I got to say, we got another exciting, effectively wild tradition making a comeback today. Yeah. It's the Krasniks, as we have historically called them. Yes. ESPN's annual hot stove survey, which was produced by Jerry Krasnick for years. And Jerry now works for the MLBPA. And so the That's mantle right. has been picked up by Jesse Rogers, also of ESPN. And so every year... They have done these surveys of executives or baseball insiders, whatever that means, and they ask them the pressing questions about the offseason, and we try to speculate about what their answers will be. One of us does. One of us quizzes the other on what the executives may have said, and then we discuss whether we would have said anything different. That's always fun. We've been doing that since, I think, at least 2014, so going way back. And Sam was always obsessed with this. He used to track it and keep track of the accuracy of the insiders because he found that they weren't really very accurate at all. (laughs) That when it was sort of a a coin flip kind of question, they typically didn't do much better than an actual coin flip, which suggests that no one knows anything, including us. But we will still talk about things, even though we may not know anything. But just a a couple of follow-ups. So for one thing, I talked the other day 
about how we need some better way to differentiate between athletes with the same name, Mm. either across sports or intra-sport. And we were talking about the Luis Garcias and how there are three of them currently and one has accent marks or two have accent marks and one does not and how that's not enough for us to be able to tell the difference and so maybe we need some sort of parenthetical indication of either the sport or the team perhaps and was pointed out that one alternative which has been used by the golfer Jung-un Lee So she is a a South Korean pro golfer who plays on the LPGA Tour and the LPGA of Korea Tour. And she is called now Lee Jung-un 6 or Jung-un Lee 6. So there's just a 6 added to the end of her name because there were five previous <laughs> Jung-un Lee's. And so there was a, a Jung-un Lee five, and, and now there's a six. And that is apparently one way that they differentiate. And so that's kind of how she's like listed, but but that is sort of officially her, her name. Like I don't know if it's legally her name, but she just goes by that now and is commonly referred to by that. So if we were to use that precedent, then we would have to have like – Luis Garcia 1, Luis Garcia 2, Luis Garcia 3. And then what do you do if you get like a Luis Garcia the second, you know, then? Oh, that's trouble, yeah. Right? Like what happens then? What, right. You know? <laughs> and we'd actually, I, I think there have been five big league Luis Garcias right. at least. So we'd be up to five. And I don't know what happens if two of them debut in the same year. Like one of the current Luis Garcias goes back to 2013, but then two of the Luis Garcias join the majors in 2020. So who takes precedence? Who is two? Who is three or four or five, as the case may be? I guess you could go by debut date or, or some other metric, but. That's one option. It's just it's not part of the baseball tradition to do that. But it would really be helpful if if that were something <laughs> that we could do. Like when we had the Bobby Joneses and it was like one was Bobby J. Jones and one was Bobby M. Jones or the Chris Youngs. I mean, there are other ways you can differentiate, but it would have been helpful if, if we had all just internalized the ordinal numeral system. So something to keep in mind. It's like, you know, we didn't we didn't do that. We didn't we don't have the metric system, you know, it just feels like we're missing opportunities to add clarity to our lives. It's yeah. too bad. Someone also asked because we were talking about the number of balls used per contest in various sports <laughs> on our last episode. And someone pointed out that we had multiple racing references in the pod, and so they were surprised that we did not discuss the number of tires in a NASCAR or F1 race which is kind of, I guess, the equivalent to baseballs used in a game or any other kind of ball. From what I can tell, it's about a dozen sets of tires per race in NASCAR. It's like 9 to 14 sets of tires per race. And, of course, there are multiple tires per set, so you can do the multiplication if you want. In F1, you're allowed a limited number of tire sets, I think, 13 dry weather tires or dry track tires and four intermediate and three wet. So it depends on the terrain and the <laughs> conditions, but there are limits there. So that's uh, that puts you, I guess, in sort of the 
the soccer range or the golf range, probably a bit above that, but we went through the whole breakdown, so that fits in somewhere there. Still, nowhere near baseball, and no one has suggested any sport that comes anywhere close to baseball when it comes to how profligate it is in terms of using its equipment and replacing its equipment. And I think part of that probably also, as someone noted, maybe players have gotten more apt to throw balls into the stands as souvenirs. So not just foul balls and home runs, but also just gifts after the last out of an inning, or if you're Milton Bradley before the third out of the inning. (laughs) Sometimes that wasn't really a a longstanding tradition. From what I can tell, it's, it's something that really became commonplace in the 90s. And I don't know whether it's because teams and the league were trying to win fans back and get back in fans' good graces after the strike. And so they gave a bunch of giveaways or whether that is a a coincidence. But prior to that, it was not something that happened regularly and was apparently something you could get fined for. Mm. I don't know how often players tested that, but I think Stan Musial supposedly said that he was once fined for tossing a ball to a fan. So... That has become more common, and I suppose that has led to maybe even more baseball replacement. But again, a good thing, I think. Yeah, I I think a good thing. It's funny that you could be fined as a player for throwing a ball into the stands, but we didn't extend the netting (laughs) (laughs) in foul territory until like two years ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of funny. I I mean, not like haha funny. It's been kind of terrible at times for people. I don't mean it in a, I don't mean to be insensitive. It's just, you know, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, usually, usually the players aren't uh, pegging people. I mean, hopefully not. (laughs) I want to be clear. If a player throws a ball in the stands with the express purpose of trying to hurt someone, they should definitely get fined for that. that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. All right. And lots of responses as hoped and planned to my plea, my prompt for people to suggest recreational sports that I could get into on the condition that it can't be too competitive and too serious. I don't mean, by the way, that that people have to be bad at the sport necessarily or beginners. I just mean that they can't take it too seriously and get too hyper competitive. And then the other condition is that I don't want to make too many new friends <laughs> and, right. uh, and get into a whole social scene. You are expressly scene. opposed to new friends. Yeah, yeah, at least in that context. Yeah. And so lots of responses have come in and people have made excellent suggestions, not just about how I could get into some of the sports that I mentioned as possibilities, but also ones that I had never considered and in some cases had never heard of. <laughs> so wiffle ball has been a popular suggestion and and that's a good one. Yeah. I should have considered that. I've enjoyed wiffle balling. So that's something I could look into indoor, I guess. Someone else reported on the topic of uh, how many balls are used per game. In wiffle ball, at least in competitive fast pitch wiffle balls, pitchers apparently supply their own balls because some pitchers prefer clean ones and some prefer scuffed ones and some have intricate patterns cut into the ball. And so because of that, the pitcher will usually use the same ball for the entire tournament. And it's a big deal if a new ball is brought into play. So that's a a big contrast from baseball. So wiffle ball is something I could look into. People mentioned racquetball and fencing, 
which I think I might be kind of into fencing. I've never tried it. Didn't even cross my mind, but might be into that. Well, and it it would seemingly really fit with a don't be social thing because you're literally (laughs) engaged in armed conflict. Exactly. Right. And you've got like- Feels antisocial. You've got a mask on, right? Right. I I could just keep the mask on the entire time and- (laughs) No one would even know I Definitely, was there. Definitely um, be as weird as possible <laughs> while yeah. wielding a sword. Yeah, Definitely I could do be that. The masked fencer. And then disc golf, kickball, quad ball, formerly known as Quidditch, volleyball, longboarding, hockey. Now, I have expressed interest in hockey, and I expressed interest specifically in floor hockey. And I've noted that I really like hockey. And one of my regrets is that I never actually played hockey because I loved floor hockey. And also I like skating, but I've never combined the two. Apparently you can pick it up as an adult. And that's something if you go to just kind of a, a rec rink, you can maybe take some lessons and make that transition. And apparently it's often played late at night, which is good for me. Ultimate, was a, a popular suggestion. Pick up Ultimate. I do have a friend or two, an existing, pre-existing friend. Mm. <laughs> so no are, new friends. Right. Yeah. Happy with the ones I have. Don't want to get rid of those. <laughs> but <laughs> but I do have friends who are into Ultimate, so maybe they could guide me there. Curling has been suggested by multiple people, and that would go along with my half-Canadian heritage. My concern with curling is that it, it seems like it's quite a social sport. So that worries me. It, but, it seems... but with a, a limited number of people. True. But uh-huh. yeah, it, it does seem that beer is kind of core to the experience or <laughs> I don't know oh, if it's yeah, like- Oh, yeah, and you're not a big drinker. Maybe not as much as like beer league softball where it's almost in the name, but drinking, I get the sense, is is uh, pretty integral to curling. Maybe not necessarily. I'm sure there are like teetotaler curling associations, but it seems like there's like curling social clubs and everything, and that just sounds too involved for me. And I, I don't know if that would satisfy also, like I, I want kind of like a quick twitch activity you know, like hitting balls and throwing balls and catching balls and <laughs> kicking balls and everything. I don't mean to discount just like the strength and conditioning and athleticism that is required in, in curling because I know it is quite a workout and it can be tough on you. But I don't know if it's exactly the, the kind of physical athletic activity I'm looking for. Sorry if I'm slandering curling anyone. <laughs> but other people proposed endurance sports. And I mean, I do do some of that. Like I'll I'll do some running and rowing and biking and that kind of thing, but but more for exercise than for fun, other than biking, which I, I find a nice sort of relaxing solitary activity. But I don't know that that is uh, something that I want to do either in a group or really as a as a sport as a competitive thing, as opposed to just for exercise or or for meditation purposes, sort of sometimes. So that's about it. I can't say I enjoy running either. It's always been something that to the extent that I've done it, I've done more out of obligation than enjoyment. So that I guess kind of covers it, but lots of great suggestions and I'm sure they'll keep coming in and I have a lot to think about and consider here. A lot of uh, potential alternatives and, and opportunities to pursue. I really am looking for. I think you should try a bunch of stuff, Ben. You know, yeah, I could audition a bunch of sports. Yeah, and one approach to minimizing the social aspect would be to to rotate, 
right? Because right. if you're, you know, you're trying a bunch of different things, and some of them you won't like, and then you'll kind of weed those out. But if you're, if you do a couple different ones, like you're gonna, you're gonna miss things. You're not gonna be around as often. You won't, you, you won't be a core cast member. You know, right. Yeah, that I might be a way to do it. Stay long enough to to put down roots. Yeah. <laughs> Rolling Stone gathers no moss and no new friends, so that would be that'd be great. I just come and go, and people be like, "Remember that guy who was here for a few weeks, and now he's not here anymore? Wonder what happened to him? Never got his name." Don't know how to contact him. Don't know who he was. It sounds perfect. I have actually heard from some other people who either have the same sort of desire or they have relatives who do maybe. And I wish that I could get together with them and and not be friends while we (laughs) pursue our sort of solitary but in groups. It's more like parallel play, you know, like kids at that stage where they're not really old enough to play together, but they will sort of play alone side by side. Right. I guess that's kind of what I'm looking for here, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, to take us back around is another milestone that you will soon reach with Sloan, I would imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Parallel play. So thank you, everyone, for the suggestions. Lots of great ones here. I'm not sure that all of these are feasible in my immediate area. Curling, for instance, I'm not sure I can curl within walking distance. I get the sense that there's curling like in Brooklyn and, and maybe north of the city. I also don't want to commute too far <laughs> so that's yet another that's condition. Fair. yeah so yeah sure there's that someone also suggested i could try my hand at cricket because if i have some some baseball skills maybe it would pour it over enough that it would be fun to try and then maybe i would also understand cricket so that would pay multiple yeah. dividends <laughs> yeah i mean i think that you have you know you have some good options available to you and mm-hmm. like i said i think you should try a bunch of different things and then like you know you can make like a movie montage right yeah. Do a montage. Right. Well, more to come. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for the suggestions so far. So I also, I meant to say, like, I noted how I just kind of wanted to perform the activities of the sport more so than play in games or like actual organized competition. And one of my favorite all-time athletic activities in high school, my friends and I invented this game that we called Matball, which was basically, it was like hacky sack, except that you could use any part of your body, basically. And we just played it with a crumpled up ball of paper. I'm sure there are many variations of this. We called it Matt Ball because the first Matt Ball was a piece of paper that had my friend Matt's name on it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's literally after named after someone named Matt? Yes, yes. And we would just crumple up the ball and like the consistency of the paper and how tightly you crushed it and, and wrinkled it up was very important. Some people would have tighter Matt Balls than others and that had different levels of springiness. But that was just so much fun. Like we would play all over the hallways until teachers or coaches would make us leave. But any spare moment, you could crumple up a piece of paper and play map ball. And it really tested your reflexes and your coordination. And a lot of us got really good at it. And we had these elaborate map ball exchanges and we would keep the rallies going for as long as we could and count up to high records. Like that's uh, among my (laughs) fondest athletic experiences was Matt Paul more so than my organized sports experiences. So I don't know if that helps anyone, but that's what I'm looking for. See, you could start a Matt Ball league, but then you would have a lot of social obligations in all likelihood and a bunch of administrative work to do. And if you do that, then I have to answer more of our emails. So, (laughs) oh, I don't know. Part of the appeal of Matt Ball was that you could just play at a moment's notice anywhere you were with zero organization. Yeah. 
All right. So a couple news items. One is that the Royals hired a pitching coach, which mm. would not be that notable, really, except for the fact that lots of Royals fans really wanted their old pitching coach gone. Yeah, Kyle they sure did. They, they felt very strongly. They did, which was partly a product of the Royals pitching staff's underperformance in the sense that you had all these young pitchers coming along and they didn't have the right support system in place. And, and some of the, the comments that Eldred would make or that Dayton Moore would make about Eldred, etc. Anyway, they are continuing their overhaul of their coaching staff from more of the Dayton Moore, Mike Matheny, old school type to now the, I guess, J.J. Piccolo as GM and Matt Quattraro as manager. And Matt Quattraro, I guess, is is filling in his coaching staff to some extent with former Rays coaches. So he brought along one of the other Rays coaches from uh, Kevin Cash's staff is, is now going to be Matt Quattraro's bench coach, Paul Hoover. So you have former Rays people running that side of things. And then now Brian Sweeney is going to be their pitching coach. And he comes from Cleveland and he has been the Guardians bullpen coach for a few years now. Great bullpen. <laughs> so <laughs> good hire just based on that. But also he is uh, someone who comes out of that Cleveland pitching development pipeline, and he's uh, very well versed in the numbers and the data. And so it's sort of this new age coaching staff that the Royals are putting together. It's quite a break from the past, which doesn't mean that the Royals will be instantly far more successful than they were, but it does seem to be a philosophical shift, which I think for Royals fans, or a lot of them, was long overdue. And it also kind of speaks to just like the importance of who you know and connections at the major league level, because a lot of this, like you hire Quattraro and Quattraro hires his former colleague away from the Rays, Paul Hoover. But Quattraro was also in the Guardian system and the Royals owner, John Sherman, he was a former minority owner of Cleveland. And so he had familiarity with Quattraro and also, I suppose, with Sweeney. And so a lot of it is just kind of connections, which doesn't mean that they're not totally qualified and they won't be good at the job. But it's kind of amazing how like even at these high stakes jobs at the big league level with tons riding on the results, a lot of it is like, oh, well, I worked with this guy and uh, he was good. I liked him. (laughs) So I want him around again. It's, you know, it's less of a, an old boys network than it used to be, I think. But a lot of it definitely when you're filling out a coaching staff, even though now it's not just like the managers drinking buddies anymore because teams are actually trying to develop players at the major league level. But there still is an element of, well, who do I know? Who's in my contacts list? Who am I friendly with? And I know I get along with. So I guess that's the same in every job and every profession and every industry, but definitely still true at the major league level. Yeah. Yeah, definitely still true. And in other, I suppose, sadder news, Gaylord Perry died, the man, the myth, the legend at 84. And just a, a few thoughts about Perry. First of all, Rob Manfred's extremely sanitized remembrance of Perry was amusing. So <laughs> his his one paragraph obit here, 
Gaylord Perry was a consistent workhorse and a memorable figure in his Hall of Fame career, highlighted by his 314 wins and 3,534 strikeouts in 22 years. He will be remembered among the most accomplished San Francisco Giants ever. And through his time in Cleveland and San Diego, he became the first pitcher ever to win the Cy Young Award in both the American and National Leagues. The five-time 20-game winner pitched for eight different clubs overall and remained a popular teammate and friend throughout his life. On behalf of Major League Baseball, I extend my deepest condolences to Gaylord's family, friends, and fans across our great game. All true. (laughs) Can't dispute any of that. And yet that is probably the only thing published about Gaylord Perry this week that will not include spitball somewhere in the first paragraph or (laughs) perhaps sentence. So maybe Rob knows uh, what we all remember about Gaylord Perry, and we should remember him as an incredible pitcher, in addition to someone who had a deserved reputation for doctoring pitches throughout his career. But it's funny that that was entirely left out by the commissioner who has cracked down on the use of sticky stuff in the sport. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, again, understandable, but yes. but funny nonetheless, right? Yeah, right. And really, like, inner circle, one of the best pitchers of all time. Yeah. He's eighth in Fangraph's pitching war, 13th in baseball reference pitching war, 18th in Jaws. So however you slice it, he's uh, basically one of the 15 or so best pitchers of all time. And a couple interesting things about him, I think... If anything, he's probably underrated just because he is so associated with doctoring pitches and the spitball that you forget that he also had excellent stuff and he threw in the mid-90s when he was young. And he's also one of those guys who hung around forever. And so people remember him as an old pitcher. And he was a great old pitcher, but he was also a good young pitcher with great stuff and lots of other legal pitches (laughs) that he threw to great effect as well. And... One interesting thing about him is that the spitball, it wasn't immediately part of his repertoire. He picked it up from another pitcher named Bob Shaw, who was proficient at the spitball, and he was traded over in 1964 to the Giants where Perry came up. And so Gaylord Perry's first couple years before he picked up the spitball, he was not very good. And maybe it's just because he was uh, young and he hadn't fully matured yet, or maybe it's because he hadn't added that to his repertoire. So he had a 77 ERA plus in his first two combined seasons, 119 innings, which was uh, partly out of the bullpen and partly in the rotation. And then supposedly, according to his book, and it's hard to know how much of that to take at face value, but it was sometime in the spring of 64, May of 64, that he really started experimenting with the spitball in games under Shaw's tutelage, and he had a really excellent season that year, although he was not at his peak yet. So you could do a before and after, except that he also picked up or became proficient with a slider that same season. So it's still hard to say whether this was night and day before and after spitball or whether it was the slider too. And sometimes he would just defend himself on the grounds that he was throwing a hard slider, not a spitball. So hard to separate the two. But also when he first came up, which was in the early 60s, that was before the real gear of the pitcher dead ball two type era. And so people were not really cracking down on the spitball at that point. There was not such a a stigma about it. And a lot of people threw it, supposedly, 
which just goes to show, I guess, that a lot of it really depends on the offensive environment. Right. If it's sort of a high-scoring era and no one's really worried about hitters being at a disadvantage, then no one cares too much about whether pitchers are getting an edge. Right. But (laughs) if offense is down then suddenly it becomes a big issue. I'm just reading from Gaylord Perry's Sabre bio here, which is written by former Effectively Wild guest Mark Armour, and he writes, Although the spitball had been formally outlawed in 1920, allowing a few practitioners to continue to throw it until they retired, countless hurlers were rumored to have applied saliva or otherwise doctored the ball in every succeeding season. Hitters complained, managers protested, but for the most part, pitchers could do just about anything to the ball, providing that no one could prove that they did it. And in the early 60s, he says this was quite common. The spitter was a hot topic, more so than at any other time since its abolition. Ford Frick, baseball's commissioner, pushed for its legalization, and he had the backing of Cal Hubbard, the supervisor of umpires, AL President Joe Cronin, and countless other dignitaries. The Sporting News, still baseball's Bible, favored its legalization repeatedly in its pages. The umpires and bureaucrats wanted to change the rule because they were not capable of enforcing it, and Mm. it had become an embarrassment. And Burley Grimes, who was the last legal spitballer, said that he thought there were more spitters being thrown in the 60s than back when it was legal. (laughs) And there were estimates that pitchers who were throwing the spitter as high as 50, as many as 50 of them. And so every time a pitcher had a few good games, they were accused of throwing illegal pitches. But No one really cared all that much until offense cratered after they changed the strike zone, and then suddenly it became a big issue, and the more successful you were, no one complained about Perry doing it either until 1966 because he was pitching really well, and he was an all-star for the first time that season. And then all of a sudden it was like, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> he's he's good. This is uh, unfair now that he's actually getting the best of us. Now we actually have to protest. So that's all uh, kind of interesting that it's so era-dependent. Yeah, yeah, de- yeah, yeah. And also, like, from 68 to 69, so 68 after that season, the year of the pitcher, the mound was lowered and the strike zone was changed. And so pitchers were at a greater disadvantage, but not Perry. He was able to weather that change totally fine. In fact, he he pitched just as well in the raw stats. His ERA went from 2.45 in 68 to 2.49 in 69 essentially the same and he pitched more innings in 69 and so his era plus went up because the offensive environment changed but there can't have been too many qualified pitchers whose eras uh, were essentially the same or improved going from 68 to 69 i imagine he was in the minority there but really the big question about him was how often was he actually cheating and right. he did his best to obscure that <laughs> throughout yeah. his career. It was, it was never totally clear. He kind of encouraged the mystery of it. And that seems to have been about as big an advantage to him as the actual cheating. At some point, he said, I don't even have to throw it anymore because the batters are set up to believe it's there waiting for it. So he would go through this whole elaborate pre-pitch routine to make everyone think that he was reaching here and reaching there. And ultimately, he may not have been reaching for anything, for Vaseline or any other substance most of the time. But (laughs) because everyone thought he was or was worried that he was, then it was really effective mind games. So. 
It was very smart. Like, I wonder if you could somehow have an alternate history where he never cheated and never even developed a reputation for cheating. I wonder how much less effective he would have been. And if he was significantly less effective, whether it would have been more because he wasn't cheating and getting the advantage of the substances or because that wasn't in hitters' heads. So (laughs) I wish wish we could know that somehow, but I guess we never can. But I wonder, you know, he he seemed to kind of court the reputation and, and indulge the reputation. So I don't know if it bothered him that he was known as a notorious cheater. Like it seems like he kind of cultivated and encouraged that to an extent. And even now, like people, it's one of the first things that comes to your mind when you think of Gaylord Perry. And so it's odd how we really condemn people for some kind of (laughs) cheating behavior and then others get a pass or, or even like a winking smile or a knowing kind of, Oh yeah, he was always constantly cheating. (laughs) It's like if you're cheating now and you're doctoring pitches, it's like a whole thing and you're trending on Twitter and everyone's mad at you. And if you're stealing signs or whatever, it's odd. I guess part of it is just like the haze of time and nostalgia and, just like, oh, back in the day, this was how it worked. Whereas if you're doing it currently, then not everyone is is as amused by it. But it is weird because as everyone always points out, like when people get up in arms about people using PEDs or maybe if Carlos Beltran, you know, the Hall of Fame conversation about him stealing science or whatever, and people will always say, well, Gaylord Perry's in the Hall of Fame. So what are we even doing here? So it is kind of a, an odd and perhaps illustrative Example of uh, of double standards, I guess, when yeah. it comes to different kinds of cheating at at different times. And I think that like we react to things differently when it is, and I don't know how fair this is necessarily, but we're more inclined to do like the knowing, like oh that guy, that's what mm-hmm. that guy does. When it's like a guy, you know. <laughs> yeah, true. I think that our our reaction to rule breaking tends to ratchet up with its proliferation and perceived sort of prevalence because if it's one guy like it can be a quirky thing that one guy does if it's you know half the guys well then maybe the game isn't you know quite straight the way it needs to be you know so Mm -hmm. that's part of it too where it's like if you perceive that everyone is using sticky stuff and that it is going to have a an outsized effect on the offensive environment. Your reaction to that is going to be different than like that scamp, that scoundrel, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's part of how we, you know, sort of weigh and balance these things too. Right. And I wonder whether in this era, even if the permissiveness was the same now as it was during his career, and to be clear, like he took a ton of flack for this and people were always up in arms about it. And it was basically a circus every time he would pitch because people would wonder, like, is he going to get inspected and is he going to get away with it? And how is he hiding it? And where is he hiding it? I don't know what that would even compare to today like if we had somehow known about the Astros sign stealing situation in real time while they were still stealing signs like that would be kind of the comp otherwise I don't know what it would compare to maybe John Lester being unable to throw over and everyone wondering whether people were going to take advantage of that but even if this era were were the same as that era in terms of the league letting you get away with it I wonder how different it would be just because of camera angles and high def and GIFs and the internet and Twitter, right? Like it would be 
such a sensation every time he pitched the way it was this postseason when <laughs> Joe Musgrove had shiny ears or, you know, Framble Valdez had suspicious whatever it was. Like, then it starts trending and it works its way to the dugout somehow. If we had high-def footage of Georg Perry from every angle for every game that we could access on command and study and share on Twitter or wherever... I wonder if that would be sustainable just because it really would be impossible for him to hide things as effectively if he was hiding things. And if he wasn't, then maybe the mystique would be gone. And also maybe just the level of scrutiny would be so intense from the fans that the league would be forced to do things. And and it was kind of forced to do things just by player complaints and opposing manager complaints. It's funny because late in his career, he became kind of a journeyman and he was yeah. going from team to team. And so managers who had complained bitterly about him before suddenly embraced him and defended him when he was on their team. But now it would just become even more of a circus every time right. he pitched. And oh, so yeah. I, I can't imagine that it would be allowed to persist. Like there no. would be consequences. You know, he, he wasn't actually ejected or suspended or anything until one time at the very, very tail end of his career. Mostly he completely got away with it. And when they inspected him, they couldn't prove anything and they couldn't <laughs> find anything conclusive. So if he actually was cheating all that time, he was extremely effective at it. But nowadays, I don't know that he would be able to either get away with it as yeah. well or maintain the illusion as well. I think, I mean, they probably weren't doing like the full James Karinchak, you know, head massage approach to whatever. Well, he didn't have nearly as much hair as Karinchak. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but they, they did like... They, they got up on him. him, yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know, man. It's like maybe it's sort of the was... Bryce Harper really seeing anything or did he mm -hmm. just want Lance McCullers to think he was tipping pitches I mean there might have been some psychological subterfuge at the same time that there was you know actual substance applied but I don't know it's a weird thing <laughs> you and know just the audacity of releasing an autobiography oh yeah me and the spitter oh an yeah autobiographical confession in the middle of his career <laughs> in the spring of 1974 comes out with a book up until that point he had maintained that he didn't throw a spitter and he didn't cheat and then all of a sudden this tell-all book comes out yeah. and in the book he says well i'm a changed man now i'm right. reformed this is what i used to do i don't right. do this anymore so <laughs> he denied it for years right. then he confessed but in his confession he's like this is all in the past I, right. i'm not gonna do this again <laughs> I don't do it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then like for decades after his career, he would always kind of hedge and, you know, just be like, did I cheat? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so he just, he sort of like managed to straddle that line somehow. But just imagine, like, imagine if, uh, I don't know, Marwin Gonzalez came out with a book and it's like, how I stole signs. <laughs> and then he just <laughs> went on playing for other teams, yeah. except like someone better than Marwin Gonzalez, like one of the best players at baseball. If if, if Alex Bregman did it, you know, right. or Carlos Correa did it, or George right. Springer did it, I feel like that would get you even more blackballed than, than actually doing it and being yeah. caught, yes. <laughs> bragging and, and not being apologetic about yes. it. So. Man, I mean, a legend for multiple reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as as we saw with literally the guys you just named, I mean, part of how we gauge, you know, our willingness to sort of grant clemency in these moments is how sincere and and sort of 
profound we perceive contrition to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that it's it's a little, it's obviously going to register differently when it's a whole team of guys and there was a World Series championship. And, you know, like there's there's stuff about how the Houston stuff unfolded that is obviously different. Again, I think when when we perceive it to be sort of a systemic problem, we tend to bristle at it more more than we do when it's like a guy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that was part of that has been part of the problem for Houston, where it's like they really fumbled a sincere and seemingly heartfelt apology and sort of active accountability for what happened. And that was that for a lot of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and shortly after his book came out, they really started enforcing the rule and right. they were worried his his team Cleveland because a ball was was called on him and that was the new penalty that they were going to put in place. And so they actually set up a demonstration for the umpires in the bullpen at Fenway so that he could throw his, his legal pitches yeah. because his actual legal pitches moved a lot right. and were good. And so right. because he had come out with this book and said he threw the spitter, now everyone thought he was always throwing the spitter. So he set up this demonstration so that he could show off his forkball for the umpires and show them that he was throwing it legally and that it actually moved as much as they thought maybe a spitter would so that they would not be constantly calling spitters on him when he wasn't throwing spitters. (laughs) But who's to say he wasn't doctoring the ball in the bullpen too? Who knows? Anyway, the only other thing I had to say about him is that it kind of amazes me that as he was on the verge of 300 wins, so he was sitting at 297 after the 1981 season, which was uh, shortened by the strike. And so he might have gotten to 300 that year otherwise, but he was at 397 and he'd been okay in 81. He had a sub four ERA, which was a little bit below average for the time, but, but he was not bad. And yet he couldn't get a job. You'd think that there would have been a lot of teams clamoring for him to come pitch for them and, and get the 300th win and sell some tickets. But It took him until the following March to finally get the call from the Mariners, and he became the ancient Mariner and got his 300th win in their uniform. So that sort of surprised me. He had a little bit left in the tank, and he had milestone watch, and he was uh, basically like a league average pitcher, roughly, for the Mariners. And the other thing is that I miss ancient pitchers. (laughs) We love Rich Hill, of course, and we want him to pitch forever. But there aren't a lot like him, and there were at various times, like that really aged pitcher, especially the aged type of pitcher who just really looked his age or <laughs> looked more his than his age, right? And maybe that's because uh, people age differently back yeah. in the day. Who knows? But we've talked before about like the Negroes and their age on baseball cards and how old Phil Negro looked. Yeah. Gaylord Perry looked really old too. But he pitched through his age 44 season and we just we don't see that anymore. Now, if Rich Hill does return next year, as he has stated that he'd like to, that will be his age 43 season. So that'll be exciting because we haven't had an age 43 pitcher we had two age 42 pitchers this year rich hill and albert pujols (laughs) but we haven't had an age 43 pitcher since bartolo cologne 
left us in, at the major league level, <laughs> at least. It? Yeah, I was going to say, be careful. You're making it sound like he died. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's still pitching somewhere out there, yeah. but he's not been in the big league since 2018. And so it was just Cologne, 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 2016, 2017, 2018. And there hasn't been an age 43 pitcher ever since. In a lot of years, there's only one or there might not be any, but right. there were really some local maximums. There were some peak old guy pitcher periods, and it was really the 80s, like mid to late 80s and late 2000s, mid to late 2000s. Those were just prime ancient pitcher periods because like in 1983, you had Woody Fryman, Jim Cott, Phil Necro, and Perry. And in 1988, you had Steve Carlton, Tommy John, Joe Necro, and Don Sutton, and they were all in their age 43 seasons or older. And then in 2006 and 2007, you had another peak. 2006 is the all-time peak with five pitchers in their age 43 season or older. Roger Clemens, Jeff Vissero, Jamie Moyer, of course, Terry Milholland, and David Wells. So we have not seen many of their ilk ever since. And and Eno Saris wrote an article last year about how this has actually been a pretty good time for older pitchers, that older pitchers have been aging fairly gracefully relative to older hitters of late. But still, they're not lasting that long. They're not right. lasting like into their mid-40s. And I guess that could have something to do with the decline of the knuckleball. Mm. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of aged knuckleballers out there. And maybe also just the primacy of velocity these days and teams looking for that. So the chill, long may you run, but I'd like there (laughs) to be more like him. (laughs) (laughs) And you'd like there to be more guys on baseball cards where you're like, "Ah, that's that's like 100 miles of bad road on there. Yes, yes, please. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, RIP Perry. Okay. So the hot stove survey, this is from... Jesse Rogers. And this year, he surveyed 12 baseball executives and insiders, however he defines insiders, but a dozen team executives and MLB insiders from across both leagues. I believe this is actually a smaller sample than usual because Rogers has has done 15 or 20 anonymous sources in the past, and Krasnick used to do like 30 or 40. So smaller sample alert here, but same sort of exercise, just polling the insiders on the big questions of the offseason, most of which are still very much open questions because not a whole lot has happened. (laughs) So maybe that'll change next week with the winter meetings. We were all excited that this was going to be a quote-unquote normal offseason post-lockout, post-pandemic, but we maybe forgot that the last normal off-seasons we had were also extremely slow, (laughs) so... Well, (laughs) yeah, I guess, like, slow, but then, like, winter meetings rolled around, and and then they weren't. Yeah, it could pick up, for sure, and and the terms have thus far been generous, if anything. I think there's money to be spent, so the pace has been a little slow, but, but it could very well pick up soon. So, here are the questions... I have primed you with the questions, but you have not seen the responses from the insiders. And so the conceit here will be that that you will speculate about what you think the insider said. And then if you have a different opinion yourself, or I do, we could also volunteer that. But this is mainly about predicting what the predictors will predict. Right. (laughs) So the first question posed to the insiders— 
Will Aaron Judge get a package worth more than $320 million? And who will he sign with? So this is a two-parter. So the first yes or no over under 320. What do you think the insider said? And we should note that even though a dozen executives were polled here, it's not always a dozen respondents. In fact, it usually isn't, which always flummoxes us. Like these people have anonymity here. They're protected. They could answer anything. And yet still, there are always some who just like sit out questions or say pass or prefer not to say. But do you think that the majority of them said that he will go over or under 320? I'm going to say that the majority said under. Incorrect. Really? Yeah. Okay, so you telling me that allows me to maybe tweak my answer to the second that's, one. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I could have held, held the reveal, but yeah. but yes, uh, it looks over. like 11, 11 answered and seven said over. And wow. so, okay. Now, I guess, and the twelfth wanna... was a Yankees executive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. So, or, or worked for the Giants, right? Uh, so, if you want to to guess the the leading team, I guess that was named. I'm gonna say the Giants. No, it was the Yankees. It was actually. the Yankees. Interesting. So, I would have thought that at three above three twenty, that that the assumption would have been that he was wooed away from New York. Mm. That would have mm-hmm. been my guess. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Six said Yankees. I don't know if this is six of 11 or six of 12, yeah. but six said Yankees and then three Dodgers and two Giants. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Dodgers ahead of Giants. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. that is interesting. Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> there you all go. Right. Huh. Question two. Which shortstop will get the most dollars and years in free agency? So can I ask, so did people answer the two parts of that question separately or as one? No, it looks like they assumed that the that same would get the most Which, years like, and the most dollars. That makes dollars. sense, but I yeah. just, you know, I thought I'd clarify. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that the majority said Carlos Correa. It's actually a slight lead for Trey Turner. Okay. Which I don't know that either would have shocked me. Yeah. But yeah, seven said Turner, five said Correa. Okay. And Correa, he's a little younger. Yes. And so I, I might have answered the same way you did there. Yeah. And I might still answer yeah. that way. I think I may disagree here. Yeah. I think, I think Correa that, might get a bigger deal. I think that he will get a bigger deal personally. Yeah. There's one executive who says that uh, Turner's skill set could age the best and Correa's had some injuries in the past, et sure. cetera. And, and that's a valid way to look at things. Yeah. But yeah, the age, I think I might lean toward Correa as well. And and I don't know whether I'd lean over or under 320. Like the Yankees have reportedly already offered eight and 300 for Judge. Right. So it will take more than that if someone is going to woo him away. Right. And of course, the Yankees could match if someone right. raises. But yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, if that was kind of the opening offer of the offseason, at least that we know of, then it, it certainly is not unreasonable to think that he could go another 20 million or more higher. So I don't know. It could go either way on that. And yeah. I guess the executives more or less did too. All right. Now this one, I guess, is more involved. So yeah. where will the four big free agent shortstops <laughs> sign? <laughs> so this is Turner, Correa, Dansby Swanson, and Xander Bogarts. And I guess if you want to just name the leading team for for each one. It's, okay. And it, I guess it could be the same answer for <laughs> some of them. Not that... 
one team will sign multiple right, of them, but, the, but they might have. They're yeah. the same teams that have a need and, and yeah. the wherewithal. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who should we start with? Turner is listed first. Okay. I'm going to say for Turner, hmm, it's going to be Dodgers and Phillies in some combination. Correct. I know that's kind of cheating, but like <laughs> it's probably those two. Uh, and then who's next? Correa. Correa. I'm going to say Dodgers and Yankees. Wouldn't it be, Ben, as an aside, wouldn't it be so spicy if Carlos Correa ended up being a Dodger? That would be <laughs> such spicy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want it badly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just because I, I like it when men have to relate to one another interpersonally and see how it goes. Because <laughs> sometimes that can lead to stuff. <laughs> uh, who's next? Swanson. Swanson, Atlanta. I think people think that Swanson will end up back in Atlanta. Okay, and Bogarts? Oh, gosh. I had an answer for this earlier, and now I can't remember what I said. I thought, <laughs> I guess, like, the Giants need a shortstop. They're not going to want to play Xander Bogarts there, though. Uh, I well, don't know. The Giants. Giants, Giants show up on every list yeah. <laughs> for all four guys, Yeah, but they are not the leading okay. contender for any guy. So. Okay. For Turner, the executives had it Phillies six, Dodgers four, okay. Giants two. Ooh. And for Correa, they had it Yankees four, mm. Twins three. Okay, fair. Giants three. Mm. And then also receiving votes, Cubs and Red Sox. And then Dansby Swanson, you were right, Atlanta Braves in the lead with six. Followed by the Cubs, the Dodgers, and the Giants with two apiece. Mm. And then Bogarts, four for the Red Sox. Mm, yeah. And also four for the Giants. So I mm. guess they were tied for the lead <laughs> there. Yeah. Okay. And Dodgers, two, Yankees, one, Cubs, okay. one. So right. same limited So they're like, here are the teams, teams that need shortstops. <laughs> yeah, basically. And yeah. spend some money, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the default, like the, the prior would maybe usually be re-sign if the team has a need there still. I I don't know, like, what's the rate of re-signing just across all free agents? Like, wh yeah. how often do free agents just re-sign with the same team? Because they would re-sign with the same team presumably more often than they would sign with one of the other 29 teams, yeah. right? So your default <laughs> assumption might just be, yeah, I guess the likeliest candidate would be that they stay where they are in unless it's a case where there's a clear replacement for that player or like the team has already expressed that it is going to be moving on or the player clearly isn't interested in moving on. All else being equal and not knowing anything, I guess it's sort of a, a safe guess that they'll be back, right? Yeah. And so with each of these shortstops, either the, the leading response or the second most popular response was just their old team because <laughs> yeah. those teams still need shortstops because uh, their big shortstop is a free agent. So why not bring back the guy you know if right. things have worked out, which they have in all of these cases. So yeah, no huge surprises there, I suppose. Okay. Will Jacob deGrom leave the New York Mets? Yes or no answer? I'm going to say no. No is the more common response. Yeah. Eight to four. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Will Justin Verlander leave the Houston Astros? I'm going to say yes. Yes is the more common response. Nine to three, actually. Ben, I could be a baseball executive. <laughs> well, I'm sure you could, but wow. <laughs> I, I'm actually sort of surprised by how lopsided that is nine to three i think a lot of people think that he is going to be very enticing to the dodgers and that yeah. the dodgers are going to be willing to do a short and big deal for him 
I think mm. that that seems to be a a growing consensus. Whether it proves to be true, I don't know, but I th- I feel like there's a growing sort of consensus around that in the industry. Yeah. It's it's interesting because uh, I have written and Sam has written before about the tendency for World Series winning teams, even more so than World Series losing teams, to keep the roster together, yeah. to, to bring the gang back. Yeah. And that's for many reasons. One, everything just worked out great. You're all feeling wonderful about each other and you want to just uh, keep it riding, let it ride and not mess with success. And also, if you just won the World Series, then maybe you have some money to spend or some projected increases in attendance and everything. So there's just good vibes all around, and Verlander's been good for the Astros, and the Astros seem to have been good for for Verlander. I guess he is somewhat more dispensable for the Astros than for other teams, given that they do have a lot of pitching, although it's never easy to lose a, a reigning Cy Young Award winner. So between his like comfort with that team in that city and the fact that he's won multiple titles there now and everything i i don't know i i guess i would have put higher odds on the astros retaining him although who knows what the astros are doing these days because they don't they don't have a gm currently they're just uh, jim crane is is just going rogue or jeff bagwell is running the ship who knows what's happening over there so <laughs> i don't know how to predict what what they will do but yes it seems like the executives even more confident that Verlander will leave the Astros than that DeGrom will stay with the Mets. So that is interesting. Okay, next, which top pitcher after Verlander and DeGrom will provide the most value? Carlos Rodon, Kodai Senga, Taiwan Walker, or Chris Bassett? Like, we'll have the highest war? Is that what we mean by this question? Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's a good question. That brings us back to our our favorite discussion about what does value mean? How do we define value? And it does not actually specify what that means. Does it mean war or does it mean dollars per war? It really doesn't say. So I guess you can define it however you think the executives would define it. Yeah, I don't know that my answer actually changes that much. I Mm -hmm. I think it'll be Rodon. So Bassett and Rodon are tied at five. Really? Yeah. Okay, so that makes me think that there is some portion of i mean bassett so i don't want to knock chris bassett i think chris bassett is a good pitcher and i think Mm -hmm. that he will be a good pitcher for whichever team signs him i think that he will sign a lower dollar deal than rodon or sango will maybe Mm -hmm. on par with taiwan walker i think he'll sign for more than taiwan walker but like if they're if we're tearing them right i think it's like rodon and then probably sango and then you know bassett and walker but with a, a gap and uh, that answer makes me think that there are at least some portion of that group of 12 that is thinking about this in like a dollars per war way. Probably, yeah. In, in this context, that's yeah. that's how team executives think of players, right? So if he was just asking, who do you think will be the best pitcher, you might get a slightly right. different answer here. Yeah. So Senga got two votes and Taiwan Walker got no votes, Aww. but he got a great pun from Scott Boris. So ah. that's something. All right. Which team outside of yours will make the biggest splash this offseason? And it would, of course, help to know the distribution of teams that Jesse Rogers talked to here, I guess. Right, but, yeah, but, yeah. but we do not know that. So <laughs> so who do you think will make the biggest splash is the question. I'm going to say Giants. I'm going to say that people said Giants. Correct. Yeah. Yes. 
But there's a, a pretty big spread here. Oh, yeah. Not, not a lot of consensus, which I guess is a good thing, right? That a lot of teams could be in the running for this, that a lot of teams maybe yeah. think they could be contenders or could be poised to spend some money. So sure. the Giants got three votes. The Phillies got two votes. I guess that always makes sense with a Dave Dombrowski team, yeah. especially coming off a pennant. The Texas Rangers got two votes. Hmm. The Dodgers got two votes. Sure. And the Red Sox, Yankees, and Cubs got one vote apiece. Interesting. So, yeah, seven teams were represented here. So that's uh, that's that's good, I guess. Yeah. Maybe that's good. I don't know if that's more or less than usual, actually. But but it's good that it's not just everyone zeroing in on a single team. So, and who will be the most notable player traded this winter? Okay, so. Let's think about who the bad teams in baseball are. (laughs) The Oakland A's, the (laughs) Pittsburgh Pirates, Mm. the Cincinnati Reds. Mm -hmm. Some of those teams have already traded all or most of their good players. The Kansas City Royals. So I have like a a sneaky answer and a spicy answer. You want my sneaky answer first or my spicy answer first? Sneaky first. Sneaky, I'm going to say Sean Murphy. Okay. Just because I think sometimes people forget about the ice. And mm-hmm. my spicy answer is Devers. Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't think that they'll actually do that, though. Like, yeah. And they should, you know, like get, like, eggs thrown at them. If they do. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't throw things at people. Just throw <laughs> metaphorical eggs. So Sean Murphy was tied for the most popular response. <gasps> Three people said Sean wow. Murphy. See, if I did as well on our drafts as I'm doing here, I would win every time. <laughs> And three said Pablo Lopez. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Two said Lucas Giolito. Hmm. Two said Brian Reynolds. Yeah. Two said Corbin Burns. Interesting. I don't think they'll do that. One said Colton Wong. Okay. One said Fernando Tatis Jr. Oh, boy. Yeah. So that person thinks that the Padres are going to sign Trey Turner. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that that would be quite a time to trade for Nino Tatis Jr. right yeah. now. But according to Rogers, the person who selected Tatis did not explain their pick. <laughs> so <laughs> just throw it a bomb and walk it away while the explosion is happening behind you. So it's uh, it's an interesting one. But yeah, Sean Murphy, Pablo Lopez, kind of the consensus there. And the Sean Murphy trade rumors have been flying fast and furious. Oh, yeah. So that checks out. All right. Yeah. And finally, how do MLB's 2023 rule changes impact your offseason's decision making? A lot. Some. Or not at all. I'm guessing some. You'd think some would be the most popular because people are always more inclined to pick the less extreme somewhere in the middle option. But not at all actually led the way. Interesting. With with six. And then some was four. And then zero said a lot. And again, two abstained for whatever reason. I just like, why agree to participate in the survey? If you're going to abstain. Yeah. Get the your yeah. name is redacted, and then you sit out questions anyway. I don't understand. It doesn't yeah. doesn't make sense. It has never made sense. No. But six said not at all. That is, it's interesting because yeah, like we've talked about this. We talked about this with Eric Long and Hagen. I'm sure we'll talk about it again. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a totally different game or anything. But we've seen some teams making trades for like shift victims and and even suggesting that maybe they will be better post shift like the pirates sure. tried to sort of 
sell that with Carlos Santana. Yes, no, they did. Maybe it's it's the pirates just you know trying to get their fans excited about something. Anyone <laughs> like yeah. any amount of spending, any veteran on that team, it's just something you say. Right. But there's like there's gonna be an impact for yeah. some players, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that all front offices have assigned an analyst at some point to oh, hey, yeah. you know run the numbers on this, figure out what the impact of this is gonna be, if any, and should we care about this? And maybe they mostly decided we shouldn't care about it that yeah. much. And Russell Carlton wrote about it this week at Baseball Prospectus, and he's written about it often. And he has concluded that there won't be that drastic a, a difference. And, and that very well may be the case, at least when it comes to the shift in positioning. But still, I would go with some. Like, yeah. not at all. Like, it doesn't right. cross your mind. Like, it's not yeah. a factor at all. It's, it's got to be some. Right. That feels, that feels like an irresponsible answer, candidly. Yeah. Are you trying to convince us that it's not at all? Because it's actually a lot. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. But then what's the purpose of doing that in a literally anonymous survey? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I would say some. It's got to be some if it's non-zero. It's some. Right. It's some. You know. How much? (laughs) Some. Yep. All right. Well, we enjoyed that as always. Thank you to Jared Krasnick for starting the tradition. Thanks to Jesse Rogers for carrying it on. And uh, we will link to that so you can check out the answers yourself if you're so inclined. I enjoyed that. I feel like I crushed it. Yeah. No, you were good at predicting how executives think, which does that mean that you're good at predicting what will actually happen? No. Because executives are seemingly not that great at that either. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> they they really they really whiff. Mm-hmm. So we had been planning to do an email show, and and then we didn't because we had the the Krasniks come along to save our bacon. I had just a couple of questions here put aside that might make sense to answer here quickly. And one was awards-related, so before that's uh, too old, we could just dispense with that quickly. Daniel, Patreon supporter, said, Why doesn't MLB have an awards ceremony where they give out all the awards, like an Oscars night for baseball? That would be a huge event instead of just doing some press releases about awards. And this is something that Joe Poznanski and Michael Schur recommended, suggested on a recent episode of their podcast. But what do you think of the idea of trying to build this up into a, a big event and have it be star-studded and have people actually show up for it and make it a whole production? Well, they do have a ceremony, right? The BBWA does a dinner in New York and they get yes. all fancy. They get yes. all stalled up for that. Right. There is yeah. an awards dinner. Yeah. But, but that's... After the awards are well, it's different awards, right? It's like it's like New York chapter BBWA awards. They give out. I think they give out the big awards at that dinner, don't they? Yeah, I think it's like in January. I should know. I've never actually gone (laughs) to it. Well, you'd have to get a tux, Ben. Yeah, I believe I have never worn a tux in my life, unless I wore one when I was very small and I've forgotten. I may go to my grave without ever having worn a tux. But were you were a, a, a suit guy at your wedding. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But right, I I think yes, I they do present. I think the major awards. I think the they do MVP and Cy Young and such, and they're also the New York chapter awards. Yes, too. I think that's also true. So the fact that. No one really knows that this exists or what it is, I guess, would suggest that maybe it's not such a great idea. But this is months after the awards are decided and and announced. So that's why. So what if you did that dinner, essentially, but but that's when the announcements were made? 
Well, I think a couple of things. I mean, sure, why not? You know, mm-hmm. it can't be any worse than the two-hour-long program to announce two awards <laughs> when we know the answers sometimes. Yes. So, like, there's the silliness of that. I wonder if some of the thinking is that, like, there are, like, the ESPYs exist, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. not baseball specific, but, you know, we already have sort of a sports award show, and I don't know what kind of numbers that does. Like, I don't know what the viewership Mm -hmm. of that is. I don't know what the viewership of any award show is at this point, candidly, but... It's less and less every year. Yeah, one one would think. So I think that it's probably... Part of it is probably also an acknowledgement on the part of the baseball powers that be that, like, not everybody who wins is charming. (laughs) You know, like, you get a guy who goes up there and he gives us thank yous, and I bet some of them would be great and some of them would be actually funny, not just baseball player funny, but some of them would be not funny Mm -hmm. or charming. Or they'd say really, you know, they'd offered really pat answers. Like, we get some of that with the SBs. So maybe they think that the sort of production value and excitement is going to be better if they just do their existing format where they have like the hour-long show on MLB Network and they show you highlight reels of all the guys who are finishers, you know, it's like what is the top three, right? They they announce the top three in in (laughs) advance and then Mm -hmm. they do like an hour-long show and you're like, oh, well, it's nice that the runner-up and third place runner-up and rookie of the year got some shine because we know he's Mm -hmm. not going to win. But yeah, I would imagine that that's sort of the justification. Plus, you know, it's a time of year when the season has just concluded. Like maybe guys want to be with their families, you know, they just got done with the postseason. Right. I was thinking that too, because when it comes to the Oscars, let's say a lot of people don't have to travel for that because they're already out in in LA. LA. Yeah. Right. And baseball players, they live all over the country. They live all over the world. Right. So I suppose if they do show up for the BBWA dinner in January, then that would suggest that they might show up earlier. I don't know if everyone shows up for yeah. that event, but but yeah, maybe coming so soon after the season, at least for players whose teams were in the playoffs, right. maybe at that point they're like, I just want to be at home and relax right, right. now. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's that. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'd be in favor of it. I don't think it would be some enormous event. Like no. when when people are like, oh, MLB does a terrible job of marketing its players. I, I always think, well, what would you do exactly? Like yeah. what, is, what is the magic bullet solution right. here that is going to make baseball super popular and every baseball player a megastar? Because yeah. I think, yeah, MLB could do a better job and has, I think, done a better job in some respects recently. But I think a lot of that is really out of MLB's control. It, yeah. It's just it comes down to larger trends in the country and competition and other entertainment options. So I don't know that just like having the right marketing message is, is going to yeah. reverse everything. So yeah, maybe it would be more exciting than telling us the finalists and then and waiting until the season is over. Like Joe and, and Mike were suggesting that they do this in the break between the championship series and the World Series when oh. everyone is is eager for that and the season isn't fully over yet. Sure. But but then you, you're going to have some award winners who are on those teams. And right. then are they going to 
travel back and forth to wherever that event right. is. And, and then they were saying, well, you could hold it where the World Series is going to be held, but then you wouldn't know where it was going to be in advance and you right. couldn't plan anything. So there's some some hangups there. I would watch, I guess, if they did it that way. If they did, uh, the other thing is that having all the awards at once, as it is, they spread it out over, over a, week, a week. Yeah. And they assume that that will lead to more conversation. And I guess it's hard to say whether it does or, or it doesn't. But if you concentrated all the suspense and all the reveals on that one day, then maybe that would be a bigger blowout. Yeah. It's just. I don't know that there's, like this year at least, there just wasn't that much suspense about any of the awards, really. There were some close races, but I think there were clear favorites even in the close races. Yeah. So, And I find myself just caring less and less about who actually wins, whether they were right. deserving or not. And we have such good stats now that we can all kind of come to our conclusions about right. who was the best without needing other so-called authorities to weigh in. So... I, I think the ceiling is somewhat limited for yeah. this, even if it were done well. But but I wouldn't be against having a baseball awards night instead yeah. of just parceling it out the way that it is currently. Yeah. I mean, if you did it all in one night, it, it probably would have fewer moments that felt like it was, it was dead air than the, the existing specials do. Although I do like that they spend time on each of the finalists, even in races where, you know, it's clear that there's a, a favorite and maybe a runaway favorite because, you know, even in those years, there are guys who have great seasons. Maybe they're not an MVP level season or rookie of the year season or whatever, but it's nice to have a moment of acknowledging them or, you know, several. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe you would have some viral screw up. <laughs> maybe sure. someone would slap someone. Maybe, maybe someone would open the wrong envelope. Who knows? So there would be some suspense about a live event if people didn't know beforehand who the winners were. But again, it, all this stuff is known to someone weeks in advance of when right. the news actually comes out. Yeah. Anyway, we're thinking about. But. Yeah. And then you have to sit there on your podcast nervous for weeks and weeks and weeks that you're going <laughs> to spill the beans and get in trouble and never be allowed to vote ever again. Right. And Alec, Patreon supporter, asked, why do we still require five innings for starting pitchers to get the win? Mm, so yeah. he's suggesting that now that starters don't go as deep into games and don't get the win or the decision as often, that we should just lower the threshold yeah. for starters. So you can win a game as a reliever facing one batter. So uh, right. why not lower it for, for starters? Yeah. <laughs> I guess that is that's one way you could do it. Or we could just say, who cares about wins and accept that now? <laughs> the only reason I, I like having it be kind of consistent is just so we can track these things over time. Just yeah. like how many fewer pitchers are getting wins or getting decisions, starting pitchers. That is, that's kind of handy just to illustrate the difference in pitcher usage, although there are many ways that you could illustrate that. If you were to make it four innings or three innings, or even if you were to say the pitcher who pitched the most innings in the game or something like that, yeah. then I guess you would have more starting pitchers getting wins, but then it would be even more meaningless to get a win, right? Because it, yeah. it's already silly to pretend that the pitcher was solely responsible for the win, which has never been true, but is right. especially untrue today when pitchers don't pitch as many innings. So if you were to lower the bar for winning so that you could pitch a third of the game or something and still get a win as a starter, then 
what is the point of the stat at that point? Because uh, why pretend that, that you are <laughs> the person who should be credited with the win when yeah. it's really a team effort? So I'd be on board, I guess, with some sort of win probability added based... <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of things that will never happen. <laughs> yeah, like the Fangraphs stars of the game, like the hockey yeah. style stars of the game that, that people can vote on. I kind of like that idea. Yeah. Or just giving it to the player who had the highest WPA. Like, yeah. that's that's more responsible for a win than whatever we could come up with whatever redefinition of the win we could decide on. So it's already so fallen by the wayside in terms of people actually using it as a tool to evaluate players. And if we were to gerrymander the definition of wins such that more players or more starting pitchers got wins, then the stat would be even sillier than it already is. So I'm kind of in favor of keeping it the same and paying less and less attention to it, basically, or switching to some sort of WPA model that might actually reflect your contribution to the win more accurately yeah. than this binary win or loss sort of pronouncement. Yeah, I think that, um, I don't know, I'm reticent to adapt the stat too much because I do like having that through line consistency, but I don't know. There does need to be an acknowledgement of changing roles. I don't know. Like you, I don't feel overly fussed about it because I don't think about wins that much. Right. And I don't think we're going to persuade people to some WPA based thing, Ben. That's not going to. Then it's like that tweet, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're not going to. You're not going to persuade people to that. That's already shifted into the realm of how we mock the nerds, so you're not going to get there. Well, the other conversation that goes on is about qualifying and changing the definition for how you qualify for the ERA title. Yeah. James Smith just wrote about that for Baseball Prospectus recently, Yes, and and he's not the first to have written about that even for Baseball Prospectus. I know Sam wrote about it years ago, and, and Rob Maines may have written about it too, but there are fewer and fewer qualifiers right. every year, and that is sort of silly, I suppose. We, we do need to set the qualifying bar somewhere so that we can have a civilization, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so having it set as, as an inning per team game, just fewer and fewer pitchers are clearing that bar. We talked right. about how potentially it could have affected Shohei Otani's performance yeah. in, in the Cy Young race, who knows? just not showing up on leaderboards. So Sam suggested, I think, and James suggested, maybe you could lower it to 130 or something like that and see how low we have to lower the limbo bar to accommodate changing pitcher usage. Or James floated the possibility of maybe you just take the top X pitchers in any year. Maybe you you take like a, a percentage or just the top raw number of pitchers by innings pitched or something and then you could keep that consistent as maybe a proportion of all pitchers or just the same number of pitchers as long as you have the same number of innings in a season the same number of teams etc so that might be one way to do it where yeah. even if the ceiling kept falling and the innings leaders other than Sandy Alcantara just kept pitching fewer and fewer innings then right. at least you could maintain well it's the top 90 pitchers in the year or however many you decide on I guess the question, though, if you did that or if you make any changes, then do you apply it retroactively? Right. And that's kind of complicated. Yeah. They have changed the the definition of qualifying for races multiple times over 
many years. And so yeah. that was a matter of some controversy at times where they had to apply it retroactively and then decide that, oh, so-and-so who at the time was celebrated for winning a batting title or not winning one or ERA title or whatever, oh, now retroactively they are the champion or not the champion. So we would have to decide whether we want to apply that throughout all of baseball history or just set a cutoff at some point. But it has been very striking even just like since 2015, I guess, yeah. is roughly when it just it fell off a cliff in terms yeah. of just workloads for starting pitchers. So things have really shifted just in the past several years to the point that maybe we do kind of need to do something. But yeah. it's it's tricky. It's tricky, Ben, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like you want to have reverence for the past, but you don't want to overdo it either. Conundrum. Yep. And lastly, question from Sean, also a Patreon supporter. You may recall or not that I'm one of the 20 or 25 living Tigers fans who hasn't given in to nihilism at this point. (laughs) And my questions are simple. Will the way this tank spectacularly failed be seen as a cautionary tale for other mid to lower market teams as to what not to do? Mm. Was it good process and bad results given that the odds of Mize, Manning, Turnbull, and Scooble all being injured concurrently would have been the worst case scenario? Or should teams more closely examine the way Cleveland doubled down on development and upside players available in free agency are otherwise undervalued? I look forward to hearing your thoughts and look forward to another season of Rage watching Javi Baez swing at two-strike sliders off the plate away like a newborn <sighs> fawn trying to walk or like a newborn Sloan trying to walk in my yeah. apartment. So first of all, is it too soon to say that the tank slash rebuild have spectacularly failed? That team does look really bad, though. It looks pretty darn bad. It looks yeah. pretty bad. And I I feel reticent to bury them. It's tough because there was a point where the Phillies rebuild looked like it had spectacularly failed. Yeah, and we spent a couple of episodes talking about that. Yeah, and it, it certainly didn't fully come to fruition, and yeah. yet they just won a pennant. Which uh, for, for many fans would probably pass the bar for, okay, that worked, I guess. Like, even if it's the first time you make the playoffs and even if you barely make it in, we also, I guess, have to essentially redefine what success is in this era. Like, is it that you have to come out of the tank as a super team? like the Astros or you have to be like the Cubs and and you have to be a perennial contender and make the playoffs multiple times and win at least one title. Or like if the Phillies don't keep making it back, did they fail or was it enough? (laughs) Even if you just like take advantage of the expanded playoff field and squeeze in and and then have a great playoff run, like (laughs) are the memories great enough to justify the whole downtime? I don't know. Probably not yet. And if you make it to contention, but a big part of your making it to contention is not even really the tank and the rebuild, but like other players you imported, then is that even part of that same process? So (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, it's tricky because like on the one hand, you look at their big league roster and you think to yourself, boy, there's a lot here that isn't very good. (laughs) But then you also look at their big league roster and you think about how, you know, well, they have they do have money committed to some guys, some of whom maybe are not going to be very good. <laughs> they actually have like a surprising amount of payroll flexibility and they're going to get more yeah. next year and the year after because Cabrera's retiring, right? 
And I imagine that some of, mm-hmm. I don't know what deal they worked out with him. Did they work out a deal with him on that? It sounds like he will play one more season. And then they'll be done. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. they were vesting options starting in 2024. So mm-hmm. he probably was going to be done regardless. So it's like yeah. they have $30 million a year coming off the books with Miggy retiring. And then I don't know. I think that it's not great. <laughs> I don't know that it is like unsalvageable but it's gonna take them spending because like their farm also isn't that spectacular so they don't have a lot of internal help that seems like it's coming right now and a lot of the sort of value in that is concentrated in like they don't have any like their their big star prospects have have made the roster some of them have it's not gone great for them Mm -hmm. you know yeah so that seems like it doesn't make you feel Good, but <laughs> no, not much that makes you feel good about last season because no. they were seen as a team that was going to take a leap, and they yeah. saw themselves that way. I think, yeah. and then they just took a step back, yeah. <laughs> totally across the board. Yeah, and as disappointing as they were this past year, they could be a bounce back team next year. Maybe Riley Green, Spencer Torkelson, they do better as right. more established sophomore players, and. Maybe the free agent additions that they made are not as unproductive as they were this past season. And some of the pitchers who were, are hurt are going to continue to be hurt for a while. But it would it's not out of the realm of possibility that in 2024, let's say, they have a, a productive core of like Green and Torkelson and some of the pitchers maybe. It, it's tough because some of those pitchers – other than Scooble maybe have have sort of lowered their outlooks and and ceilings to some extent yeah. even if and when they come back healthy you might not have the high level top of the rotation expectations for them that people once had so that's tough if there's anything you could say about the process i, I guess the fact that they did go very pitching heavy at they first did. right and and that was always a bit of a risk because if you're building your foundation on pitchers it's just it's always going to be kind of a shaky foundation so they had all these top pitching prospects and then they had to get some position players too <laughs> and then eventually they got some good position player promising prospects as well but it was initially a pitching centric rebuild which yeah. you really you could say about the Braves too right because right. they set out to have a very pitching centric rebuild and then it turned out that some of those pitchers panned out but really like it became more of a position player yeah. team i mean suddenly you had Acuña and you had Albies and now you have Harris and all these position players and and big bats and everything who came along so i think it doesn't always go its planned and even if you set out to build around pitching you might end up not really being built around pitching as much but but that is always kind of questionable because you could go in one direction or the other you could say well everyone always needs pitching and so we're going to go really heavy on pitching because we know there's going to be attrition and so we're just going to stockpile pitching or you could say it's inevitable that we will always need more pitching and even if we do go heavy on pitching we will still need more pitching so let's bank on position players which I guess is more what the Cubs did right and their core was more based on position players but then they really struggled to supplement with pitchers certainly internally they just yeah. didn't develop pitchers who could supplement their position player core right. so obviously you do need both but right. if i had to lean one way or another if i were sketching it out maybe i wouldn't go all the way one way or the other but i certainly wouldn't go heavier on pitching i don't think i would more bank on on the bats no 
Well, and then it's like if you have a a pitching heavy rebuild and okay, fine. Like maybe that works out for you, but then maybe don't sign Javier Baez, you know, like look for (laughs) like, I just like look to raise your floor so that you can survive the variance of pitching more easily. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, there's a lot of variance in Javier Baez's bet. And I, <laughs> like, I enjoy watching him play baseball, but boy, does he sure, yeah, he does, he does swing through sliders like a fawn trying to walk. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's more like flailing involved with Javi. But yeah, like I, I get what you mean. So it's like maybe you think that the pitching strategy is gonna play for you. Cool. But then, you know, like protect your downside risk maybe a little bit better. I don't know. Yeah. Well, obviously they feel like it's not working because they made a leadership change in the front office. And so I guess the question is, will Scott Harris be able to salvage this and pull it out of the stall? Or because it's a new regime, partly, will he be more likely to to blow it up again if things don't take a step forward and say, well, this isn't my mess, right? So I I don't have to clean this up. I I can start fresh and I won't be married to to this particular attempt at the rebuild because I was hired because that was going so badly so I could come in and and restart essentially. I don't know what his pitch to ownership was. Was it, it's okay, I can pull this out or was it, I might have to start over again, (laughs) but you want someone different doing that. I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's imminently like trying to trade everyone on the roster, anyone who's left and would be attractive to other teams. So I I assume they will still make some sort of go of it and hope that there's a bounce back the season and that guys get healthy and then there's payroll room. So it's not like out of the question that come 2024, let's say, we're looking at the Tigers as a team that could still pull things together with the players that they were trying to count on here. So it has been a failure, but I wouldn't say it is destined to definitely be a failure forever yet. Yeah. (laughs) It's not that encouraging, I know, but... (laughs) Yeah, and they're also, you know, they still have the benefit of playing in the Central, which is less of a benefit now because they're going to have to play the not central a lot more than they have Mm. previously had to play the not central but they still i think are in a division that is relatively weak compared to some of the others so like yeah maybe some of the guys who had a really bad time rebound you know maybe torkelson finds his footing at the big league level maybe they supplement some of their existing roster with outside additions you know they get miggy's contract off the books and then they're able to you know, do some more there, although they could still do stuff with what they have. So I'm not saying like they can't do that. And then, you know, a year from now, we look around and we're like, oh, they're kind of hanging around in the wild card. Could Mm -hmm. be true. Yep. Doesn't seem like the most likely outcome (laughs) to me, but it is not an impossibility. So that's good. Okay. By the way, the range of pickleball responses I've received, it's, it's been yeah. very wide. Some yeah. people very pro pickleball. Other people have, have said pickleball too competitive and, and maybe also too much socializing. So I don't know what to think about pickleball. I might give it a try. Also, golf is, is kind of out for me, I think. I've, I've played a little golf and I just, you'd think maybe the swing would port over from, from baseball to golf, but eh, I don't mind going to a driving range every now and then. But, but the actual golfing, 
the expense, the travel, etc. No, I don't think it's for me. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. All right. We've got to do a pass blast to end here. I also meant to, to mention about Gaylord Perry that there's the famous anecdote that is being shared about him finally hitting a home run right after the moon landing because his former manager Alvin Dark had quipped that he would not hit a home run before they put a man on the moon. This was like in 1964, several years mm. before they put a man on the moon. And then finally, he hit a home run immediately after they put a man on the moon. In 1969, Gaylord Perry hit his first major league homer. But what people don't point out as often is that he had not homered to that point in his career. He debuted in 62. He didn't homer until 69. But then he homered Again in 70, again in 71, again in 72, and he hit a grand total of six homers. Ultimately, he homered when he was 42 years old. So, yeah, it took him a long time, but once they put Men on the Moon, he homered several times. And he was actually just as good a hitter as an old pitcher as he was as a young pitcher, which was not good at either time. But but, uh, there's an old Nate Silver study that that showed that pitchers just get worse at hitting, or at least when they used to hit. It was just sort of like a straight line down aging curve wise because uh, whatever athleticism allows you to maybe put the bat on the ball early on because pitchers don't actually like train to be good at hitting. They just Mm. get worse and worse and worse and they don't actually compensate with anything to make up for the declining physical skills. Although Sam wrote about this too and found maybe that wasn't always the case. But if that's the case, it is impressive that Gayward Perry was uh, as good an old hitter as he was a young hitter, even though he was bad at both times. Okay. Here is the Pass Blast from 1937 and, of course, from Jacob Permaranke, who is a director of editorial content for Sabre and an expert on the Black Sox. This is 1937, A Machine-Like System. After Branch Rickey and the Cardinals established the modern farm system and every other team followed suit, Rickey began to look for new ways to gain an edge. In the 1930s, he started organizing dozens of tryout camps all across the country gathering hundreds of teenagers together every weekend to throw, run, and hit in front of ex-players and coaches who graded their performance. Ricky envisioned these camps as, quote, the chief source for new talent doing away almost entirely with the scouting system that has been in vogue for many years, as the Sporting News warned in an editorial on February 18, 1937. Ricky believes that tryout camps eventually will be established at strategic points throughout the nation and that they will become the mecca for every youth ambitious to carve out a career in the game. If his prediction is realized and the scout passes from the scene, the sport will lose one of its most colorful appendages. But mass production now threatens to force the individual to the sidelines in baseball, as it has done in industry, and to substitute for him a machine-like system that will pass judgment on prospects by the hundreds instead of by the scores. It begins to appear that the Ivory Hunter 2, that was uh, something scouts were called back then, must give way to a more efficient system that will throw all young talent into a mechanical hopper, which automatically will separate the wheat from the chaff, classify and label the product, and designate the farm to which it should be sent for ripening. History apparently is repeating itself, with the camp meeting destined to play an important part in the revival of the game. And Jacob concludes, Ricky's tryout camps turned out to be a fad. No more efficient or cost-effective at discovering top prospects than scouts who never went away then or now. 
The Cardinals' biggest signing of 1937, thanks to their scout Ollie Vanek, was a left-handed pitcher from western Pennsylvania named Stan Musial, who was still 16 years old. His contract wasn't legally allowed, but when Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis punished the Cardinals in the spring of 1938 for hoarding minor league players and allowed more than 100 of them to become free agents, Musial was not on the list. It would have changed Cardinals history if he had been, but... That's as always, there are a lot of parallels here, right? Like people worried about scouts going away, people worried about changes in uh, talent procurement and evaluation, and is it all just going to be mechanized? And that was what Ricky had in mind. Ricky, he really would have fit in well these days. <laughs> I guess that is why he is uh, innovative and revered, is that he kind of remade the game in, in his image to some extent, and yeah. everyone else followed suit. But he was ahead of his time, and, and it's this time that he was ahead of, but he was kind of thinking along the same lines. So. Yeah, I guess you would think that 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 might be more efficient if you just had all the players come to you in a bunch and you just watch them all at once instead of having to scour the country and go to tons of different games. It's like the showcase circuit now, right? It's the same sort of idea, I suppose. So I guess he was onto something to some extent there, but it's true. Scouts have uh, not gone away <laughs> on some teams at sometimes they do yeah. but but they're still hanging in there yeah and at least at some levels and right I, I i guess like the royals academy they they use tryouts decades later and and tryouts are still used i mean there's still players who are found through tryouts and will sign with major league organizations through tryouts but it is not sufficient as right. a way to uh sift through yeah any options out there yeah Just too many. Just too many. Too many. All right. As is often the case, I have a few final notes for you. The first is that we recorded this episode prior to the Rays signing of Zach Eflin to a three-year, $40 million deal. So this is yet another data point to suggest that the money is flowing freely. The MLB Trade Rumors estimate for Eflin was two years and $22 million. And Meg is actually going to be the beneficiary of that one because she took the over on that deal very wisely in our free agent contracts draft. And she will be on the scene next week at the winter meetings to deliver her hot podcast takes from San Diego, where much more money will be spent, presumably. I don't know which amuses me more or confuses me more. The fact that $40 million is the most the Rays have ever spent on a free agent, I read. Or the fact that Zach Eflin was the player who prompted them to spend that record-setting amount. Of course, they have spent more on contracts, but not free agent contracts, apparently. That is not a ton of money by base. Baseball standards. Also, a couple more follow-ups. First, on the changing equipment within a match or contest. Beat a couple more submissions. Raymond notes that the sport that goes through the most of its essential piece of equipment is target shooting. Of the various disciplines, I think mixed doubles trap shooting goes through the most in a match. 150 clay pigeons and 150 bullets per team. Okay, good point. I was not thinking of shooting. I was thinking of balls. I guess a bullet is sort of a ball. A very deadly kind. But if you have a sport that is based on shooting and destroying targets, 
I suppose it would make sense that you would need to swap stuff out frequently. Another suggestion from fellow Patreon supporter Jimmy was badminton. Apparently players like to swap out shuttlecocks quite often. Yes, it's not a ball sport. It's a shuttlecock sport. Nothing at all amusing about that term. Jimmy points out that roughly two dozen shuttlecocks are used in an Olympic match, but the average pro badminton match lasts about 40 to 50 minutes. So if you extrapolate to a baseball game length, then the rate is kind of close, maybe at the low end of baseball's ball swapping rate. So that's a good one. Had not considered that possibility. And evidently, badminton's umpires really crack down and restrict players when it comes to swapping out shuttlecocks. So if they allowed the shuttlecocks to be swapped as freely, as liberally as umpires allow balls to be swapped, then things would really get out of hand. And lastly, an actual ball-related suggestion from Lord Crondor pertained to lacrosse. By rule, along with the ball used for the opening face-off, there must be 10 balls lined up behind each end line at the start of play. This is because shot attempts do not necessarily result in change of possession, and they usually don't, so the offense wants to get back to play quickly and simply picks up a ball from the end line instead of chasing it to the fence or backup net. Also, these balls are swapped out periodically because the originally textured surface can become smoother with use. Balls that have been smoothed out are called greasers, and they are terrible because you need friction between the ball and your stick mesh. So just to make sure I have that straight, you do not want greasy balls, you want friction between your balls and your stick. Okay, back to the message. So while I don't have any hard data on single game ball usage, my guess would be that somewhere around 25 to 30 balls see the field during a given game. Nowhere near the 100 plus in baseball, but significantly closer than most other sports. The reason we were talking about equipment being swapped out is that I was proposing that is one of the most notable ways in which baseball is unique or near unique. And to recap, my top five were the equipment being swapped out frequently, all the balls being replaced, plus the variation in field dimensions and sizes and shapes, and the defense having the ball and initiating the action, and the ease of analysis, the way that baseball structure lends itself to being broken down sabermetrically, and just the comprehensive data that is produced. And then my final nomination was the lack of a clock. I did ask for other nominations, though. Now, one listener and Patreon supporter, Jabron, he quibbled with my field dimensions and sizes pick. He noted that neither cricket pitches nor soccer pitches are uniform either. They vary in size. That is true. I guess you could say the same about golf courses or the field in Australian rules football. I would argue that other than golf, baseball maybe has the most variation in size and shape. The diamonds are basically going to be the same, but if you factor in foul territory and outfield shape and depths and fence heights, etc. Not to mention the playing surfaces, which vary in many competitions. I'd say baseball probably takes the cake there, but perhaps it's not unique. If we were going to swap something in, there are a couple of possibilities. One, multiple listeners suggested the fact that baseball managers and coaches dress in the same uniform as the players. That is true. That is a very weird one. (laughs) Extremely idiosyncratic and anachronistic. Also strange that they can go on the field during games. I don't know if that deserves to crack the top five, but it is certainly unusual. And then my other idea is something that we discussed about two years ago on episode 1625, and that's the fact that the strike zone is proportional to the player's size, to the batter's size, which is weird when you think about it in sports. And this elicited a lot of responses and subsequent discussions. But in most sports, the 
essential dimensions are the same for everyone, at least within the same level in league. If you're a shorter NBA player, you don't get to shoot at a shorter basket. But in baseball, the strike zone's dimensions change based on how big the batter is. And that maybe makes it easier for baseball to permit more shapes and sizes for its players at the highest level, though there's certainly a lot of variation in other sports in that sense too. But the strike zone, kind of the center of the action in modern baseball, being so sensitive to the size of the competitor so that that conforms to the player as opposed to the player conforming to it and being advantaged or disadvantaged as a result, that does sort of set baseball apart. And lastly, just wanted to share some research that listener Matthew did. He wrote in to say, I was listening to your conversation on episode 1912 about team-by-team home attendance. It made me wonder who draws the best on the road. After making the attached spreadsheet, which I will link to on the show page, I was shocked to find out that the Cincinnati Reds had the third highest average road attendance in 2022. I thought maybe this was a quirk of the schedule, so I created a simple expected road attendance metric based on a team's opponent's average home attendance. As you would expect, the Yankees are the best at drawing away from home under this metric, followed by the Dodgers. Oddly, Cincinnati is still third in this metric, and Oakland jumps to fifth. The Padres were fourth. And then the Phillies, the Mets, the Giants. I could imagine someone with more math skills making a metric that takes variables into account, such as time of year, day of the week, standings, etc. I do not have those skills. On the other end of the spectrum, St. Louis was 20th in this metric. They had the second highest home attendance. And Colorado is 22nd. They were ninth in home attendance. It was interesting to think about why Cincinnati and Oakland draw so much better on the road than at home and why no one wants to see St. Louis play their team. I assume this means nothing and I'm thinking about road attendance wrong, but I thought I'd mention it in case you'd like to muse about it. There does seem to be some correlation generally between how good the team is and how good its road attendance is, but it's definitely not even close to a perfect correlation. And I would guess that you have some teams with giant fan bases and intriguing reputations, the Yankees and the Dodgers, they will boost attendance. But then after that, it's all sort of a jumble, and there's barely any separation between the next several teams. The Yankees and Dodgers are sort of outliers on the high end. The White Sox were at the bottom, and then the Rangers and the Royals and the Mariners, but again, very little separation between teams for the most part. And I would guess that aside from a few, there just isn't all that much variation. I mean, think about it. When you're deciding whether to go to a game, how often is the road team, the visiting team, the defining factor? You're probably going to see the home team, or you're going because you have some time and you just want to see a baseball game, or you're going to hang out with friends. So there's probably not that much separation among most opponents, and then when you factor in the variation in the weather and the time of year and the starting pitcher matchups and all of that, then that could produce some sort of fluky results. That's my best guess, but I always appreciate it when listeners do some interesting research and send it in. I also appreciate when listeners support us on Patreon, which they can do by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Max Gannett, William Fife, Kellen Larson, Jason Lee, and Ron Jolly. Thanks to all of you. Patreon supporters get access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, reserved solely for Patreon supporters, as well as access to monthly bonus episodes and a whole host of other perks. 
discounts on merch and ad-free Fangrass memberships, playoff live streams, and more. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you sometime early during what we hope and expect will be a more eventful next week. Every single one of us could have a good time. Never ever bickering or falling behind. Saying that I don't know there's a long time to go. It's just run to burp. <laughs> uh, sorry, Dylan. <laughs>